do we create a sense of community if we're all, you know, 40% of our population is working remote? Verse and saying, well, we can't do, the thought is, well, we, we can't have that in order to have community, we need to bring people back. So let's, so let's push that way versus saying, how do we redefine what community is? Um, how do we now look at community in a very different way and create different ways of creating community across whether I'm sitting somewhere in a coffee shop having a conversation with you or I'm sitting on the Zoom call. And so we're in this very interesting space of where it will be, do we fight to get back to the way things were or do we fight to evolve as an institution in order to strengthen us better? How do you navigate change? It's a question we think about often and one that today's world expects us to be comfortable with. The challenge, however, is where do you begin and how do you develop the mindset and skill set to be successful? Welcome everyone to the Sprint to Success with Design Thinking podcast. I'm your host, Saba Kidwai. Join me each week as I share the stories and strategies from the world's leading researchers and practitioners about why they believe the answer lies in practicing design thinking. If there's one thing I've been rethinking a lot lately, it's leadership and what it means to even be a leader. Confidence and courage were always prerequisites. Today, however, confidence and courage have to be built on the foundation of deep empathy, taking a much more relationship-based approach to leadership. It's not just about your vision for what you hope to see and feel within your organization. It's about how you're going to bring everyone along on the journey. Leaders ultimately exist because of followers, and followers exist because of leaders. I've been reading the work of David Notgrass a lot lately, as I find his research on leadership to be particularly relevant to the dynamic of today's world. And he also has one of my favorite definitions, really encouraging us to think about four pillars of what it means to be a leader. David shares that transformational leaders are those who encourage creativity, recognize accomplishments, build trust, and inspire a collective vision. This work is often referred to as change management. And today's guest is here to challenge this term because he believes we need to take the management out of change management. He's here to share a vision for how we can reframe the way we think about change within organizations by using design. I'm delighted today to be joined by Frederick Martin. Frederick is the Senior Director of Enterprise Change Management at the University of Virginia. He's responsible for the organizational transformation within the academic division and UVA Health. He has a track record of over 15 years in delivering business and culture transformation in large, complex, and highly matrixed organizations. Frederick previously served as the master change agent for Ascension, including 40,000 aligned providers, 146 hospitals, 2,600 sites of care, and 160,000 employees. In addition, Frederick heads up change design and implementation for the Spill Team, a global design consultancy. To say that we have an expert with us today would be an understatement. Frederick's unique experiences provided him the privilege of seeing what leadership and change have looked like across industries. Our conversation begins with Frederick sharing how he defines change management and how he has seen the industry evolve over the decade.
how I define change management is essentially having an organization, people or team uh, do something different, um, do something different than what is happening before. So you're really looking for a defined result that does not mimic what is actually taking place today. Uh, and it's in its simplest in its simplest forms. Um, when you go back through and whether you look at Cotter's bridges, all the other models, they talk about taking an individual through the, the, the change curve, whether it is starting with denial and working way all the way through acceptance and desire and, and going through this sort of linear process that human beings don't actually go through is sort of the, the basis of change management. Change management itself as a discipline has really been around for over, over two decades. Uh, it's only into, until I would say maybe the late 90s, early 2000s, when it, when it really became something that organizations were starting to really look at and pay attention to. Because as we all know, disruption and change was happening because of the, advance, because of the advancements in technology. And so that's really what made organizations kind of pay attention to, you know, to, to change management. The discipline itself has also not evolved that much from where, from where it first started at, in my opinion. I think about it in the proverbial sense of um, being asked to be at the table. And because we, because change management was asked to be at the table, we're so happy to be at the table that we continue to sort of do the same thing over and over again, where, we, where a lot of emphasis was placed on how do we build communications plans? How do we do training for individuals? How do we go out and do stakeholder analysis? And a lot of that also be, uh, came from because change management was also sort of housed in this space of um, IT and technology because that's where a lot of the change was coming from. And so I think a lot of people naturally looked at change management as this process of how do I check all the boxes? And if I check all these boxes, then people will proverbially fall in love with what I'm asking them to do differently. And as history has shown itself, that is not the case because even today you still have 70% of change initiatives um, failing, if you will, whether you know you look at you can look at different sources of data around that. And so the, the evolution of change management, I would probably say hasn't changed that much other than other than people knowing more about it and wanting the desire to use it within their organization. Um, the problem is not every organization or individual knows how to define that and what it looks like for them in their organization. And so that's how you, you run into these problems where people say, well, we need more change management. And what does that mean? And then they go out and they get their comms person or their project manager because some of the elements of change management are very closely aligned to project management. And they take it and they do it as this sort of bolt on to everything else. And you will see this person is over project management and change management or or their over change in communications when, when essentially you can't do both because one of the others gonna, gonna overtake the other one and, and most likely the change piece, which is the, the, the human side of it, typically gets left behind. Change management can't be a department, Frederick says. It has to be part of the organization's culture. Ultimately, it's about people working through the emotions of change. As disruption exponentially increases, so has the emphasis on change management theory and practice. As Frederick points out, while technology has increased exponentially, the change management field has not. And like so many other important terms, often shrugged off as buzzwords, we rarely take the time to define what they mean in the context of our organizations and our communities. 
You'll remember at the start of the season, Eric Brynjolfsson shared that we have to identify what values are going to drive how we use and leverage technology to do things differently. Over the past year, I've observed that those organizations who have intentionally come together to define terms such as creativity, critical thinking, communication, equity, trust, and more are faring far better than those who have not yet taken the time to pause and do this work. Once you've decided what those terms mean to your organization, it's then important to establish a criteria so that professional learning can be designed for individuals within the organization as well. Providing people with personalized professional learning experiences that come both from the organization and are chosen by the individual themselves will be the difference that makes a difference in how organizations move forward. Frederick highlights that one of the greatest challenges in this field is that change is often seen as being the responsibility of the IT department. Our experiences have taught us that change is never linear and that depending on the scenario, we come in at different comfort levels. Frederick's emphasis throughout our conversation is that we must place humans at the center in how we think about change, bringing together people from all different parts of the organization so that we can hear their perspectives, understand their concerns, their challenges, but also their motivations. I asked Frederick how individuals can become more self-aware about how they're experiencing change to make an impact. Every human is different. Let's just start there. <laughs> the basic fundamental that every human is different and every human goes through certain emotions or goes through certain types of change, um, whether at a, um, a fast, expedient uh, pace or someone that, that needs time to, to really take time and process information. I take myself personally because I'm able to process information and I go through it so I don't things don't necessarily sit with me. So I'm able to really come into a situation, look at it, assess it, make sense of it, and move on from there, where someone who is a, a, a high, highly sensory type person or feels a lot may have to really sit with that for a while to really go through, how do I feel about this? Why do I feel this way? And am I being heard? And what's the validity in that? There's no right or wrong answer to it, but I think in today's world, because things are happening happening so rapidly and so and so quickly, the idea of sitting and processing something for two, three, four weeks just to see how you feel about it, we, we, we just don't have that time anymore. Um, because by the time you've made sense of it, we've often moved on to something else outside, out, outside of that. And so I won't say that it is not necessary to do, because I think people as an individual have to kind of go through that process on their own. Um, but the more quickly you can sort of uh, identify, assess, and kind of navigate your way through that and figure out how you fit in that change, the better off you'll be to moving along. If you listen to the podcast or if you follow me on pretty much any platform, you know that my mantra is this idea that cultures of innovation begin with a culture of empathy. And it's something that Frederick echoes throughout this conversation. Understanding how people experience change, their fears, their motivations, allows you to create a shared narrative and shared roles towards your vision. Frederick emphasizes why this is essential to change. I was fascinated by his range of experiences that span various industries, but I'm most fascinated by the parallels he's observed between the corporate environment versus the education environment. I asked Frederick to share the similarities and differences in what designing for change looks like across these different spaces.
Yeah, people often ask me how I got into change management and, and how did I find myself in this space? And I, and I quite frankly tell them by accident. Um, when I was started out, when I started out my career, there was no job in change management or role in change management or anything of that nature. But what I find the common thread in all of my jobs throughout my career has either been asked to come in and turn around a situation or a department that wasn't performing the way that it was, that the way that the organization needed it to perform, or come in and build something for, for us from the ground up, um, which both really had an, an essence of change in, in both of them. And so whether it was spending my career, where I told you I started my career actually in call centers, and, and I started my career literally on the phone, hating that job, saying to myself, and this was, and this was back in the day where you did not receive insurance at a call center until you've been employed for six to eight months because the turnover rate was so high, they didn't invest in giving you benefits. And so I would always tell people, I would never be here long enough to get, in, I would never be here long enough to get insurance. I will leave before this because I, I don't want to try and sell someone something they don't want or hear someone complain to me about something I had nothing to do with. Um, fast forward, and which I think is also a, I contribute a lot of my career to, I've been fortunate enough to have really, really great leaders in my life that really saw an interest in me and in my capability. And so I had a, my leader at the time in the call center industry really taught me about the business of a call center and the nature of that business, which gotten me more intrigued into that overall business, which, which ended up leading me from being a call center rep on the phone, taking calls to working for a startup where I, I literally went to several different countries and, and did offshore outsourcing for about two and a half years where I would go to India, Jamaica, Philippines, South America, Canada, and open up call centers from the ground up and teach people how to run, how to, how to build a call center, um, and also learn different things about different cultures and, and ways of life, which was a truly humbling experience for me. It really gave me a lot of perspective because the things you think they're important, you realize aren't really important anymore once you, once you go to other, um, other places. And so, Doing that and then finding my way into healthcare throughout what I would say three, three areas, um, operations, um, being in process improvement, um, quality assurance, and organizational design. So these three core elements throughout my career, I think, have, have collaged themselves in a way to really have me be the change expert that I <laughs> that that people say that I am and that you know that and that and that I do it because I don't see things from just simply one perspective. So I'm also I'm I'm able to enter a room or enter a meeting and understand the importance that this change may have from an IT standpoint, from an operational standpoint, from a training standpoint, from a customer impact standpoint, and not just look at things through just one singular lens, which 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 just lends itself to to this current space of understanding not only organizationally what's, what's important, but also what's important to, to, to the people within that organization and the customer um, as well. But yeah, it was not, was it something that I, I charted myself out to do? Absolutely, you know, absolutely, absolutely not. I sort of fell into this space. Uh, now I find myself, I'm the senior director of change management for the University of Virginia, my role uh, overseas change for the academic division as well as the um, as well as our health system as well. Do I also head up change design and implementation for the spill team? And so there there are vastly different organizations and vastly different things that I've seen throughout my career. And so um, before coming into higher ed, I was in quote unquote corporate America and seeing how change is not. I won't say easily adopted, but there are certain attributes that help 
that, that allows an organization in the private sector to, to adopt and move through change much more quickly than in a higher ed environment. Some of those examples are within a corporate America structure. The CEO says, hey, we're going to go out and do this new technology or we're going to change our growth strategy. We're going to do something different. There isn't a whole lot of discussion or deliberation around, okay, are we really going to do this? What exists in higher ed is this, what I, it's this thing I call opt-out culture, where you will have in higher ed, you may have a school, a unit, or division, although the institution has made a decision to go a certain route or do something differently, a school may say, you know what, no, I'm good, not going to do that. That doesn't happen in corporate America. That is, that is one difference. The other difference, I will say, other fundamental difference is how each sort of defines themselves. So you may have an organization that my previous organization prior to becoming the University of Virginia um, was Ascension Health, which is a large, which still is probably the largest non-for-profit healthcare system in the nation, which, which takes a special interest in the poor and vulnerable. So a very mission-driven organization to where it is, it is not only about our margins, but it's about our mission of serving the community. And so while, while still very grounded in these principles of who we are as an organization, that still does not impede the, the sense of innovation. It does not impede the sense of how do we get better at what we do in order to better serve our customers and our patients. Higher ed is very different. The, the, the culture and the traditions in which it is grounded in um, typically holds you back a whole institution back from doing something. Think of, think of, I think one of the perfect examples of this is online learning. Online learning is not new. Um, it is something that's been around for probably over, over 20 years, but a lot of institutions uh, did not want to adopt this because they felt like it didn't go, it wasn't on brand for them, or it did not, or it did not speak to who we are as an institution and it goes against our culture versus looking at looking at it, how can we adopt this thing or this, this online learning thing is really taking off and it's very, very real. So how do we, how do we embrace it and how do we infuse it into our current model, you know, to help us expand our services to our, you know, to our, to our student population. And so those are just really some of the, some of the big key differences that I see between your, you know, your, your higher education institution um, and then your, you know, your, your corporate America. Frederick's right, it's rare that you see change management as a job description, although I do think that's changing more and more given the past year. Operations, process improvement, and organizational design are the three core elements that Frederick said collided to allow him to create his skill set. The importance of seeing multiple perspectives, he says, is essential. It's what empathy looks like in action. It's not about what's important, it's about what's important to people. One of my favorite moments in this interview was Frederick calling out the core difference between corporate and education environments as that being opt-out culture. This part of the conversation is one that I think Frederick articulates particularly well. His observations about opt-out culture are probably ones that will resonate with many of us, especially those of us who are students. We've all had professors who are more relevant versus those who are not. And it's really that lack of accountability in the field that will be the difference between organizations that are able to survive and thrive and those that we see disappear over the next decade. Returning to graduate school to pursue my doctoral degree made me realize that today's learning cannot rely on school alone. Rather, we have to be aware as students of both current and emerging trends and think about how we want to complement our traditional experience with other experiences. 
I think this is something that carries into the workplace as well. You can't solely rely on your organization to design your professional learning for you. You have to be self-aware about how you learn best, where you learn best, and with who. I have often shared that this is how the podcast was founded. The idea that I would simply write a dissertation to be read only by a few, quite honestly, seemed ridiculous to me in the age of social media. While turning my dissertation into bite-sized pieces of content, whether it's through my blog, through my Instagram posts, or through the podcast, wasn't something that was assigned to me. However, I was able to use my skills and my mindset to complement the experience in a way that met my needs and my goals. This is one of many examples of what Frederick means when he shares that the culture and traditions of higher education often hold us back from best serving the needs of the people they are meant to serve, their students. As a leader, being able to mentor and grow individuals within your organization is both an incredible and necessary strength. Frederick highlights how people saw him for him. I appreciate Frederick taking the conversation in this direction, and so we ask him to talk more about this. How did the mentorship he received as a young African-American male contribute to his success? I would say not only not only seeing me for me and seeing the potential in me, even, even when I didn't see it or know it within myself was definitely a through line. The, uh, another thing was when I think about all those leaders, they were all very much risk takers. Um, they, you know, they, they, they pushed against norms and against the, the proverbial envelope in order to do something different, um, whether it be for the sake of the organization or for the, or for, or for the sake of the actual department. So they were really calculated, you know, risk takers, if you will. And, and overall, they were just good people. They were just, they were just really good people. The kind of person that not only do you enjoy working with and for, but you just also enjoy just being around. I remember one organization that I was a part of and I was there for, I was there for about six years and about year four, I really wanted to leave, but I stayed there because I enjoyed my boss and the people that I worked with and the work that we were doing. And so I think people don't put enough emphasis on that, even though the data tells us that people don't leave organizations, they leave their bosses. You know, we, we still fail to realize the importance of having a good leader to individuals' uh, growth and potential within an organization and, and really paying attention to that. And so I think those are the, the through lines that I have for, for those folks that have, I've been fortunate to have in my, um, in my past and present. Yeah, no, and I think what you really highlight there, and it's a big topic of conversation right now, is just relationships right? Like having like that building that rapport and that relationship can go so far in, you know, establishing and helping with these other initiatives and these other things that we hope to see within people. You said something really interesting, kind of going back to that opt-out culture of higher education. I love how you phrase like, you know, that whole, like, it's not like, oh, okay, this is a trend. It's more like, okay, how can we adapt, you know, what we're doing and what role can this technology play? I'm curious just across the university, and I'm sure, you know, with your networks of higher education, what you've seen the result of the pandemic be in higher education and some of the questions and trends you now see people thinking about and asking about. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question. I think the pandemic has accelerated the pace of change in higher education. And I personally believe that even before the pandemic and people that have talked to me before, and I've I've always kind of had this theory about um, higher ed having very similarities to healthcare and sort of where healthcare was 10 or 15 years ago when people were asking, why does it cost so much? 
What's the value in it? And, and, and how do I actually navigate this system? And nothing, and nothing is changing. Ultimately, forcing the government to step in and say, hey, we've got to fix this healthcare system because the, the, current, the way that it's currently set up is just not sustainable. I think higher ed is on that same trajectory. Uh, I previously thought that it would be as a result of the student loan um, bubble bursting because I felt like you look at the data says the student loan is, I think, still the second largest debt for, you know, for, for Americans. And at some point that bubble was going to burst. And I felt like that was going to be the thing that, that kind of forced higher ed to, to look at things differently. But I do, but I think the pandemic took that place. And so we found ourselves in this, in this state of how do we now try to make up for the last 20 years of things that we didn't do? Um, which is, which just, it's like infrastructure for a city. Once you're, once you're behind on infrastructure and your traffic is horrible, you're not going to go out and, and, and lay 18 lanes of highway and everything is going to be better. You're just not going to be able to keep up with it. And so one of the aspects that we're looking at now, and it's funny because I'm working with a group of, with a group of a cross-functional group now where we're looking at this thing around future of work. And we've been talking about future of work for a long time at the institution and across higher ed in general, as it relates to flexible work. And so now that, you know, the world is seemingly trending in the right direction and we're finding ourselves in a space of life may be seemingly getting back to some sort of air quote normal here over the next couple of months. And so institutions, you know, like ours, you know, like ours here and others are saying, we want to now bring students back to campus, bring students back to grounds and sort of we seemingly kind of have this, you know, have this normal, this normal setting when the, the workforce has literally been working remotely for about 14 months now. And the workforce is saying, oh, wait a minute, I'm not sure I want to come back. And why do I, why, 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 why do I need to come back if I've been doing my job from home and seemingly doing it the way that it needs to be done? What's this whole push to have us, to have us coming back? What I'm noticing and seeing people do, which is, which I feel like is a, is a person's a huge mistake is trying to force fit back into, let's get back to the way things work versus how do we now take an opportunity? And this is not about turning institutions into Google or, or, or Amazon or Microsoft where, you know, 80% of your workforce is, at, is remote. That's, that's not what this is about. This is about how do we now take advantage and leverage where we are today from a flexible work perspective to say, what roles really do need to be here, um, you know, on, on, on grounds and, and why they need to be here and, and how do we, how do we ex take advantage of this to, to also expand our, 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 our diversity pool of work and workers, because now if I don't have to relocate to Charlottesville, Virginia, I can do my job from Portland, Oregon, and I can, or I can do my job from California or from Florida, wherever I want to be, which now broadens the net of, of talent, which we're going to find ourselves in this talent war soon enough because people will begin to, um, to leave. And, what's, and what happens is, and it kind of goes back to this higher ed, you know, being this very, right, very deep you know, sort of, and I'm going to use the, 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 the bad word, the bad C word, kind of cult-like thinking to where we can only do things the way that we've always done them and we can't change them. So, and they do this thinking in the sense of, well, how does, how do we create a sense of community if we're all, if, if, if you know, 40% of our population is working remote? Verse and saying, well, we can't do, the thought is, well, we, we can't have that in order to have community, we need to bring people back so let's so let's push that way versus saying, how do we redefine what community is? Um, how do we now look at community in a very different way and create different ways of creating community across whether I'm sitting somewhere in a coffee shop having a conversation with you or I'm sitting on the Zoom call? And so we're in this very interesting space of where we'll be, do we fight to get back to the way things were 
or do we fight to evolve as an institution in order to strengthen us better? What will you fight for in your organization, Frederick asks. Will you fight for a return to how things were, or will you fight to reimagine and design new futures? How might we rethink what roles look like in a flexible work environment to not only expand our diversity pool, but our talent pool as well? How do we create a sense of community when 40% of our workforce might be remote? How do we redefine what community even means? I say this all the time and I can never stress this enough, but being able to showcase your creative skills, your strengths, and your experiences through projects you've worked on becomes essential when you desire opportunities that are not bound by proximity or job boards. I recently had the pleasure of attending the Creator Retreat with two incredible content creators, Jeremy Austin and Angie Villa. You might even remember them from a previous episode. I'll be talking and writing about this more because what fascinated me the most about this experience was while we learned a lot about content creation and strategy, the premise of everything was our mindset. Believing that we are worthy, that we can overcome obstacles, believing that we are unique and have something valuable to offer. It's really this mindset that serves as your ultimate superpower and differentiator between those who achieve goals and those who remain stuck. Schools are really primed to eliminate the equity gap that exists in providing young people with the access and exposure to develop the skills and mindset to design their lives and their careers. So I asked Frederick what his thoughts are on this and how we can bridge this divide. It is an interesting concept because that is also yet um, equity is a word that is often tossed around as a reason to not have flexible work or reason or reason why we should get back to the way things were. With the understanding that equity is can be defined and looked at in, in a various ways. And so I always encourage people to look at it and say, well, what is how are we defining equity? What does it, what does it look like for the, you know, for the organization, for the institution, but also looking at it from a sense of some jobs, like if I'm, for example, if I'm the plumber, <laughs> I can't do my job. <laughs> I, can't, I can't sit at home and, and change the drain <laughs> in the dorm room by doing that. So, I, so as a professional and as a plumber, I should not expect for that to be able to do that in the same notion of someone should not, we should, we should not box ourselves in and say, well, because the plumber can't do it and it's not equitable, then no one else can work from home or no one else can have flexible work. And this is, and these are the dynamics that I find people getting themselves into where they toss out these words in an essence of how do I stop change from taking place versus really thinking through what does it really mean? And so there's a big difference between, if you look at, I think broadband is one of the big ones. So if I'm a person and I live out in rural, you know, rural uh, Charlottesville where, where broadband is not, is not the best and internet capabilities are not very high. And so, and we now find ourselves where my job is the same as Frederick's job and Frederick um, lives in the city and he could work from home because he has good broadband. Is it really truly an equitable situation if I say, hey, or if, I, if, if as the boss says, we need you to come into the office because we've noticed that you haven't been able to get certain things done or, or every time we're in meetings that your, you know, your, 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 your system drops 18 times because you live in a place where you have little to no broadband. 
is that really, a, 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 and for me, it's, it's not, I don't know the answer to this, but is that really an equitable situation or is that really a situation where, where I live, I just don't have the right setup in order to perform my job from home and not find myself in these situations. And so I think that we have to take a very, very deep look at equity and equ equitable situations because I do believe they exist. But let's, but also understanding and being taking the time to peel back the layers on these things, so we don't find ourselves using that as a reason to not evolve um, or accelerate as as you know as an organization. Skills gaps is is a huge huge factor because you know higher ed itself, for the most part, they 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 either they change doesn't exist or exists very very slow. And so one of the one of the profound things I found when I got here was that we still have people using access databases, you know, and I got here in 2017 so I didn't, I didn't join the organization in 1980 so you know. Um, so let's so let's be clear that people were still using these bad systems and these bad these bad technology or these just old technologies to do their business with and so. What's happened throughout the years is they're really higher education truly hasn't had what I would consider professional development for its employees because they've, they've often relied on the fact that if I work for a university, I'm coming in, I'm going to work here for the next 30 years, and I'm going to leave. And, 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 and I, the chances of you asking me to leave are slim to none. So let's just throw that on top of it too. And so there also hasn't been, there's not much motivation for me to, to keep my skills sharp as I go throughout my career, because I'm proverbially sitting in the same seat, putting the same round ball in the same raw hole for the last 30 years. And so now we find ourselves in a space where we're looking at Zoom, Slack, Teams, and people are saying, well, I don't know how to use those things. We don't know how to, we don't know how to, um, to operate in this fashion. And, and in some cases, it's, 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 it's unfortunate and sad because the institution may revert back to, well, then we won't, we won't adopt that because Frederick, Susie, and Bob in the office who've been here for 30 years, they're uncomfortable using that. So we're going to continue to do things the way that they, the way that they have been. If, if you really want to look at a good example of this, is this whole idea of everybody saying we want to be data driven. We want to be data driven. We need to have data driven decisions. We need to be a data driven organization. And then when you put the data in front of them, no one knows what to do with it. Or, or, or their idea of data is putting, dumping something in an Excel spreadsheet and saying, now, how do I make a decision with this? But realistically, we actually haven't taught people to have a relationship with data and, and, and to actually understand a certain amount of data literacy, which, you know, doesn't allow an organization to evolve. And so I do believe that the skills gaps in higher ed will be a, a long tail from the pandemic too, as well. Once again, Frederick brings us back to the importance of defining terms before assessing or creating them. He highlights what was perhaps one of the greatest challenges about the work from home conversation, that there are some jobs where it's possible to work remotely and some positions where you just simply cannot. That difference should not create an environment where everyone is forced to work the same way. However, everyone should have the skills and mindset to be able to make that choice for themselves. Professional learning is another critical conversation that's raised by Frederick many times throughout this conversation. He encourages us to define what it means within our context and what we want that to look like for ourselves. There's a very strong cause and effect theme emerging throughout my conversation with Frederick. As we think about what we design moving forward, I ask him to share his vision for what we can put into place now to create the effects that we desire. Yeah. 
when I break culture down, um, I just I, I break it down to just a, a system of beliefs and behaviors and beliefs being what do I believe about my job? What do I believe about my organization? How what do I believe about how things should be done? Coupled with actually, how do I do that? What does that actually look like? And the and the first the first step in really unpacking that and, and, and really understanding it is an organization and an individual, they have to sit down and have conversations with what I talk about or consider those uncomfortable truths. So what are the uncomfortable truths about your organization or about how things are that we all know that happen? We know, we know. so we, this, while we may promote that we are a collaborative working environment that, you know, that, that, that values diversity of thinking and execution of ideas. But when it comes to actually working that way, we know that's not who we are. And so really sitting down and having and, and, and having real uh, uncomfortable conversations around these elements, around the beliefs of an organization and the beliefs and the behaviors of an organization to understand, are these the things that are holding us back or helping propel us forward? So if the belief is the only way to have a sense of community, is, is if everyone is on grounds here at the University of Virginia, then the behavior would be let's bring everybody back and then go and then go from there versus looking at, well, is the, can the belief be that we have the ability to create our own, uh, our own sense of community, whether it be virtually or in person, and then the behavior is how do we then now do that? That's very different and it helps, and it helps the organization move forward versus hanging on to these things of, um, of past and days old, just for the sake of um, you know, you know, tr tradition and things of that nature. One of the things that I heard a lot, and I'm glad we stopped saying it in, in, in a lot of places here at, at you know at, at the university, is that well, it was good enough for Thomas Jefferson, is good enough now. It was like uh, I'm not sure if that's a good analogy. Um, and 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 well, and well, I appreciate that. That was um, you know a couple of hundred years ago. So I don't think that's that's that's, that's not the same thing that we should lie on um, today, but. When any organization or any department or any team talks to me about change management or trans or transforming their organization before I even before we even get into technology and processes and, and all these other elements, I start with the, you know, with the very core, what is your culture and what are the beliefs and behaviors that currently live with inside your organization? Let's examine those first, because if we don't do those first, whatever you try to do after that. It's 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 like pushing you know pushing a boulder up a hill with skates on. You're you're making it you're making it hard for yourself, which is what most organizations ultimately do. They'll go out and they'll buy the big technology, and then they'll go out and they'll restructure their you know restructure their entire department, and then they don't do anything from a, from a culture standpoint because people say you know culture change is hard, and it is hard. But just because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Anyone who's been in the space will agree with Frederick when he says that culture change is hard. And that's even more reason why we need to design for change with people at the core. Culture, Frederick shares, comes down to the relationship between beliefs and behaviors. Albert Bandura was the father of the concept of self-efficacy, and he defines this as people's beliefs about their capabilities to produce designated levels of performance. We talk often about the importance of taking risks and learning from failure and being creative. Yet do our practices, our behaviors, and beliefs within our organization align with a culture that allows for individuals to really thrive in doing these things? 
To examine this, Frederick encourages us to reflect on this question. What are the uncomfortable truths about what happens in your organization? One uncomfortable truth that I've noticed within organizations that I sometimes work with is a culture of permission seeking, a lack of agency and autonomy amongst many individuals within the organization. Ultimately, this is a reflection to me that there's a lack of trust and psychological safety between people. During one of my prior conversations with Frederick, he shared the difference between doing things to people versus doing things for and with people. I asked him to share strategies about how we can design cultures that increase autonomy, agency, and self-efficacy. Thank you. That that's something that you know. I, I as I've really started to to really dive into you know the the, the concepts and ideas around human-centered design and design thinking and, and how they and how they work hand in hand with change management. It, it it really it really led me to this place of you know doing things you know not doing things for people but doing things with them. And so how do we bring people along? And if you and you know for those of you who are listening, I actually did a post on my LinkedIn around this where I actually said drop the manage out of change management out of change. So, so how do we, so because if you think about the fundamental premise of management or managing, it is, it is doing something for people, controlling in, in, controlling them or something in such a way where they don't have the ability to do it themselves. So then how do we, how do we remove ourselves from saying, we, we, we have to do this for people and versus with them. And how do we, how do we bring the right people to the table that, that, that not only do the work and understand the impact, and bring them along through this process, but also allow them to have an active, be an active participant in what they're actually building. So we're building something together versus saying, here's this thing that I want us to go out and do, and, 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 now, and now going and doing it. And, and, as, and as the world continues to evolve, and especially as, as, as you know, uh, millennials become more and more into the workplace and, and, and Generation Z and all, and, and, and all the other generations that, People want that now. So the whole idea of as a as a manager, if you're if you're a manager or a leader and you're thinking that your job is to actually just tell people what to do and have them go out and do it, I, I, I challenge you to rethink that because people want to be a part of something. You know, people, people no longer just want to show up and 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 work from nine to five and then go home. They really want to be a part of something. And the way you make them be a part of something is you you allow them to be a part of the building process. You allow them to be a part, you make them a part of that journey. So it's not only just engagement, it's what I also call having active participation because I can be engaged in what we're doing, but if I'm not actively participating, then I'm just showing up and I'm doing my job. So how do you get people to actively participate, to participate in things? And so I think the more we move away from the need of doing things for people and, and, and start moving toward doing things with them, I think the more evolved in the organization, the culture will be. Now, given that there are certain things you, as a leader and as an organization, there are certain premises that this is who we are, you know, this is what we're doing, this is what we're, this is how it's going to be done. But I, will, I would like to think that, you know, even in some of the largest organizations, when certain ideas come across the table, there's still a sense of bringing folks in on that to have a conversation, to be a part of that versus just saying, Hey, I'm sure what Apple's M1 chip just dropped yesterday. I'm sure Tim Cook didn't say go out and build this chip and let's see it in two years without having people come in and be a part of that building process. And so how do we how, how do we do things with people versus doing it for them is, is extremely important. Um, you think about the community sector. You know, when you go into 
some of these food deserts. So you go into some of these these communities where you have, you know, uh, uh, high diabetes or high, you know, other chronic illnesses. And you say, we're going to show up. And we're going to give everybody shots and or we're going to show up and we're going to build you, a, you know, build you a garden and walk away. Often that doesn't that's that's not sustainable. But when you come in and you ingrain yourself in the community and in, in with those community partners and, and, and allow something to be built together, that creates a sense of ownership. Those, that's where the rubber starts to meet the road and you start to have that sustainable change take place. Step one, drop the manage out of change management, says Frederick. If we want to design change with people, we need to do it together. This summer is an ideal time to examine with your community, what are we building together? As Frederick reminds us, people want to be part of something bigger than themselves. How you bring people along on this journey is what's truly going to differentiate leaders and organizations in our world moving forward. I interviewed Frederick the day after Derek Chauvin was found guilty. Frederick emphasized the importance of how we build communities continuously in our conversation. And in light of the current events at the time, I asked him one of the questions that I get asked most often, and one that I'm currently working to bring more guests on to speak about in next season's um, release of the podcast. And that's how we can use design thinking to strengthen our social and racial justice initiatives and efforts. I think that it is, it is funny because my partner and I at, at, at this build team, Joshua, um, we were actually talking about this the other night at, at dinner. We were talking about the role that um, human-centered design, design thinking can play in social in, in these social issues. Um, and the essence of what does it look like? What does it? How does it? You know, how does it all come together? And we did an event. It was earlier in 2020. The event was called Unstuck, and it was around how do we? And it was bringing these community partners together. Um, those that were in education, those where they're in food banks, those where that were in these other non-for-profits in, in these spaces around how do we kind of unstuck our thinking and start to think and start to think about things in a different way. And so at its, at its highest level, I think that design thinking and human-centered design can be really a strong um, facilitator and a navigator of bringing those, bringing the people in the community together to have those, to have those authentic conversations about why do I feel this way if I'm a police officer? Why do I feel this way if I'm a community advocate? Why do I feel this way if I've been living here for 30 years? Why do I feel this way if I just moved here? So really, so really helping facilitate and navigate those conversations with the with the with the right people in the room or the space is is definitely uh, a place where I see that design thinking can help in using those tools to help really people not only you know, check their own biases and their own thinking, but really help peel back the layers and the ice because, you know, design thinking allows us to do that. Really not stay at that surface level, but get really, really deep into what we're talking about. And in essence, to, to say, hmm, maybe I was looking at that all wrong. Or maybe, or maybe, or maybe the way that I perceive that is not the right way, is not the right way to perceive it. And so I do see, you know, human-centered design and design thinking playing a huge role. or can't have the ability to play a huge role in this, in the social justice space, um, especially in as a as a, as a facilitator and as a and as a sort of as a tour guide through what people are dealing with and what people are are experiencing, moving them from you know conversation to action. And I think that is also the key: is not only just having folks in the room that have an open and an honest dialogue, but how do we move them from you know how do we move them from conversation to action to results. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I love that idea that we're just where you said, like, why do I feel this way towards the situation? Because right. sometimes it is unpacking that, like that is that self-awareness for yourself that may mm -hmm. lead to insights that you can share that maybe you didn't know and other people didn't know either. Yeah. And I think being able to create those you know, spaces where people can have those conversations and those dialogues is really, I think, ultimately then what informs our beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. So now we're not operating off of what this is what I heard on the TV or this is what I think I believe, but this is where those beliefs are coming from. This is what those beliefs are, um, acknowledging them and then seeing how that sort of leads out um, to action. Yeah, it was really fascinating. You know, this is probably one of the first conversations where somebody has been able to go so deep with human-centered design or design thinking that I didn't that we didn't even use the words because it, it's that next level. So I do want to take a moment and ask you what design means to you and why you find design thinking to be a valuable tool. Design to me is wow. In essence, it's it's everything. Design is everything from the keys on the keyboard to 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 the visualization that you have when you look at a certain picture to how you think about designing or doing or taking certain actions for individuals or for things you know if you think um, you know I, i'm a I'm, I'm a former athlete i love sports and so when i think about you know when your coach designs a play and how they design a play in mind to get all all players on the team or on the on the court or on the field to move in the same move in the right direction for an ultimate goal and so design to me is 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 all this sort of simplistic beauty that brings out the best in people i will say definitely in this last year really trying to get organizations and people to really sort of let go of their own biases or their own thinking around things and seeing and using design thinking as a as a way of doing that i've seen i've seen the success that it that it has and the important part that it plays in that and so I, so it, it's almost like having a person sort of come to their own you know senses meeting by themselves and i think design thinking it's simple and complex in such a way that allows people to 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 allows you to have to walk someone through it, using it, not knowing they're using it. And then they find themselves in this place of, oh, wow, I didn't realize, you know, I didn't realize I was actually, you know, walking through, you know, you know, the, the, being in the IDH stage and going through these processes and these, and these stages. And so um, I think it's, it's simple enough to use where people can, can gravitate to it and be able to see once they're done. And I've yet to be a part of any design thinking session or workshop where people leave not saying, wow, I was able to unpack so much. And, and really learn a lot of a lot of things. Um, reflecting on a recent session that that we did using the um, using you know design thinking and human centered design uh, to where people people appreciated just having the space to think and and the power in just taking the time to sit and just think about stuff which we which we naturally just don't do. It is go 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 do 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 get result get result get result. And we just don't take time to say, let's just sit and think about this. Let's not do anything else. Let's not try and solve it. Let's not try and go out and save the world. Let's just sit and just spend some really valuable time doing deep thought thinking work around what it is that's actually taking place, what we're seeing, what we're trying to do, and then moving on. So, yeah. Design thinking gives you the skills and tools to facilitate conversations that can be uncomfortable, overwhelming, and oftentimes sensitive. 
It helps us move from simply having conversations to action and to results. As Frederick shares, design is everything. This marks the last episode of our season. I'll be returning with new episodes in fall, and during the summer, I'll be releasing short segments from my conversations with the many incredible guests that I've had over the past year. As we close, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Dr. Wanda Austin from her book, Making Space, Strategic Change for a Complex World. Dr. Austin says, leadership is not accidental. You have to make the time and space with your team to be strategic in this complex and global world that we live in today. I hope you take the time to make the time and space to design a new way forward with your teams. It's your turn to join the conversation by sharing what you enjoyed or what questions you still have. In a world where time and attention are so valuable, thank you for choosing to listen and for being a part of our Sprint to Success with Design Thinking community. 